Well, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews. We're going to look at two passages that, that prepare us for what we're going to be looking at really over the coming weeks, just a few weeks. This is a little mini-series that I'm going to be doing. I'll say more about it in just a moment after we've read God's Word. But Hebrews chapter 11, and then we'll be turning to the, to the book of Jude for just a couple of verses there as well. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then in Jude, verses 3 and 4, again, God's inerrant, infallible word. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever and forever. And aren't you glad it does so that we know what we need to know? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful word. We pray now that you would speak to us loudly because we're hard of hearing, that your spirit would illumine our minds. There's nothing unclear about your word, but our minds are cluttered with sin. So do for us what we need so that we can go out and be for you what we need to be. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said over the next few weeks, in light of Pastor Blevin, or Pastor, uh, let's try this again, Pastor Morris, I've been saying Blevin so long, forgive me. As far as I know, Pastor Blevins is not going to be away. He's going to be at Christ Church where he belongs. But Pastor Morris is going to be on vacation the next two Lord's Days. And he's going to be back one Lord's Day. And then he's going to be gone to Europe to visit with Matt Lamus and the churches there and others uh, in Europe. And encourage them and preach for them some. So I'm going to do this little mini-series the Christian life, doctrine is for life. I'm not good at coming up with titles. That's, that's, that's what we're going to be doing. Pastor Morris has been reminding us for several weeks, ever since he arrived in the book of Ephesians, how important it is in this day and time in life, in, in the life of the church, not just in this world, but in the life of the church itself, that we know what God teaches us so that we know what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be living. 
And so this is something of a piggyback on that Ephesians series from various various passages in the scriptures, looking at this from different angles. Back in 2016, I did a similar series that carried over into early 2017. And it was really stimulated uh, by a study that George Barna, the pollster, did. And this is what I read to you back then from the State of the Church 2016 that Barna published. Most people in this country identify as Christian. Now, that was shocking to us then. Because I don't think most of us who live in the world around us would even guess that most of our neighbors would claim to be Christians. But his findings are that most people in this country identify as Christian. Almost three-quarters of Americans, 73%, say they are a Christian, while only one-fifth, 20%, claim no faith at all. That figure includes atheists and agnostics. A fraction, 6%, identify with faiths like Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, or Hinduism, and 1% are unsure. Not only do most Americans identify as Christian, but a similar percentage, 73%, also agree that religious faith is very important in their life. 52% strongly agree that it's very important, and 21% somewhat agree that it's very important. That's 2016, the state of our country, or the church, I should say, here in this United States. However, I would remind you that when these pollsters do these surveys, when they ask someone if they attend church regularly, they're asking them if they attend any kind of service one time a month. So that could be a Wednesday night, pop in for a meal. That counts. That could be in December, a Christmas cantata that counted that could be an Easter pageant in the springtime that counts as I told the new members class this morning as we began a new series with that host of folks once a month doesn't get it around here that if you show up one time a month we don't keep count we don't count heads but we will know because our elders and our deacons care. And so they're paying attention. If somebody's not here for a couple of weeks, we're on the phone. Somebody's checking on them to be sure that they haven't either fallen into grievous sin or they, you know, perhaps they're sick or, well, they may be on vacation. But we want to know because we care. Just in the past few weeks, Ligonier Ministries has produced their every other year report on the state of theology. You can go to the Ligonier website and access it 
and you can see the entire report. I have actually printed it out. I'm going to make it available this coming Wednesday night. Anyone that would like to have a copy of it, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to read through. But here's the part that's, that particularly is germane for us now. And I'm quoting, in 2022, 71% of polled U.S. adults agreed with the statement. Now, this is U.S. adults. This is not the church, okay? 71% of polled U.S. adults agreed with the statement, quote, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, end quote. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that the world has bought into the notion that I'm, go- I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Everybody's basically good. Now, it doesn't matter that people are killing each other left and right and that wars are raging all over the world in different locations and that innocent lives in the womb are being taken no matter what the U.S. Supreme Court says. None of that matters. We still insist. You see it on the news, don't you? After someone's slain 15 or 20 people. And someone, some neighbor will say, oh, but he was such a good young man. No, really. A good young man. And then they look back on his, on his, internet, on his, on his computer and they find where he's not good. He hasn't been good in a long time. Guess what, folks? The Bible says he ain't never been good. There's none good, not even one. But 71% of the U.S. adults said, oh, yeah, we're basically good. Everyone's innocent. David said, I was conceived in sin. He wasn't talking about his mom and daddy doing something illicit. He's talking about himself. He's the product. He is a sinful product. Paul quoting the psalmist, there is none righteous, not even one, none who seek after God, none who understand, and yet the U.S. population insists we're all basically good and innocent. Okay, so we're not surprised by that. Here's something that should shock us. This one should shock us. The survey also showed that 65% of polled evangelical Christians agreed that people are basically innocent. Let me just say it this way. If you walked into many churches around the country today and said, the Apostle Paul says, there's none righteous, not even one. We're all born sinners. There's no such thing as an innocent native somewhere in the world. 65% would disagree with what the Bible says. That's the state of the church. Now, here's what Barna concluded in 2016. Doctrine, doctrine is in trouble. But people still believe things. The problem is they don't practice what they believe. That was 2016. 
Now, here's the shift that's taken place since 2016, folks. The problem's not doctrine's good, practice is bad. Now the problem is doctrine's bad. So practice is going to get worse. What we do is not going to improve when we're saying worse things. We believe even worse things. It also breeds all sorts of confusion in the minds of people. We'll talk about that a bit this evening. So it is worse now than it was in 2016. As someone uh, uh, this morning commented uh, in the new members class, that in this recent uh, bit of information that Ligonier and Lifeway Research has produced in their findings, it's not just it's not just sad and frightening to see the results, but it's sad and frightening because they chronicle the last decade, and every two years, these numbers get worse. It's growing progressively worse every two years. You can see it. But we can see it, can't we? I would suspect that not anyone in this room that's a thinking, honest Christian could say this surprises them. Because they've been walking the streets of America. We've been watching the news. We've been watching the events play out. It's no longer practice that's out of accord with doctrine, but it's doctrine that's out of accord with God. And that should scare us all. And it's not just the world that thinks wrongly, it's the church that thinks wrongly. Do you see what Paul said here after he said in Hebrews that what faith is and and that doesn't match up with what we're seeing the stats say anymore. But did you notice in Jude's little letter, he was eager to write to you about our common salvation. But, he says, I found it necessary to do something else. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what I'm doing over the next few weeks is appealing to us to gird up our loins, to prepare our minds, to prepare our hearts to contend for the faith. One of the things Paul reminded the elders in Ephesus when he was speaking to them at Miletus, Acts chapter 20, that there will be those from the outside that want to tell us wrong things and there will be those among us, wolves in sheep's clothing that will rise up to try to mislead. So we, we're seeing that and we need to be prepared and we need to be able to contend for the faith. This is true not only of the adults in this room, but our children. You know, there's nothing more, more special to a pastor. And this has happened in, in, in my life several times over the last few months where one of, our, one of our youth come and say, could I ask you a question? And we sit down and they ask a question. A friend of theirs has said, 
A friend of their, theirs has said in a class setting. A friend of theirs has said at, a, at some function. And they're wanting to engage them. They're wanting to contend for the faith. And they want to be sure they're doing it well and doing it rightly. That makes, that makes everything else worth it. Don't ask me what everything else is because I'm not going to tell you. But that's marvelous that our young folks are wanting to contend for the faith. That should be a challenge to you adults as well. Are you contending for the faith? Well, let's do this just for a few moments. First point, doctrine is necessary. Immediately you say the word doctrine and people shut down. There's something of some a negative rub about it for some reason. Don't know why. Uh, some people think doctrine is dry. I'll remind you. One of the first articles I was asked to write for Ligonier for Table Talk was on doctrine being practical. And I, I quoted, and I, I've probably had uh, uh, the article, the Ligonier article that has, has had the most mail on it was the one I wrote on suffering, which was the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. But the quote that people want to know where it is, is in the very first piece I submitted to Table Talk. And it was this quote from Dr. or Professor, rather, John Murray of Westminster. And so I supply it. I email it back. Here's where you can find it in his collected works. Murray, the Scotsman, was asked about doctrine and that how doctrine too often can be dry and Murray's reply was, yes, theology can be dry as dust. But that's okay if it's gold dust. You keep that in mind. If it's gold dust, that, I mean, everybody should get excited about gold dust. So hopefully we, we are in this church and we'll continue to be. If you think that doctrine is formal, if you think it's dry, think of it as gold dust. If you think it's legalistic, if you think it's binding, uh, well, you're among a good deal of company. People who think that way. But I'd submit to you that the Bible says that doctrine is necessary. It's just another word for teaching. And the word teaching appears all over the Bible. The word didactic, that's part of preaching is being teaching. We're to teach one another. When we exhort one another, when we encourage one another, we're teaching. We're just, we're just putting our doctrine out there to help people, to challenge people, to correct people. And I would submit to you that doctrine is necessary because doctrine frees us from bad thinking. Take the doctrine of man, what we've just seen. Most people think that man is basically good. Man is born innocent. Uh, we've just had a baby born. 
I can tell he's not had much sleep. Daddy, that is. We have several little ones. Anyone who's been here long knows that. Philip, if your mama hadn't already told you this, and if you've not learned this from this pulpit, you will not have to teach Henry Joel to sin. He knows how to do it right now. Locke was wrong. We're not born tabula rasa. We're born with a sinful nature that informs our minds and our wills and our emotions. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't believe that, you will be confused and you won't know how to relate to other people. You say, hmm, what? Yeah. Because if you think man's basically good, then you're not going to understand why a basically good person doesn't want to believe in a very good God. Why would my friend who is so, so nice and so good and so innocent not, not love Jesus? Well, if you've got a biblical view of man, you know why he doesn't love Jesus. You know why he doesn't want to be around God and around God's people. It's because he's at enmity with God. He is alienated from God. In the garden before the fall, Adam loved being with the Lord from everything we can find inferred in the scriptures. But then sin came. And what happened? He was ashamed. He was fearful. And he hid from God. See, that's not... See, Adam was no longer in the state of innocence. Adam was the only one ever created, placed in a state of innocence. He was, he was put there with original righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. He was, he was created in a state of, of defectible righteousness. And when he sinned, he fell. No longer, no longer at peace with God. No longer at ease with God. Now he's fearful and running from God. And if you don't understand the fall of mankind... You, won't, you don't understand why mankind acts and reacts to you and to the church and to God the way they do. But when your doctrine is right, the doctrine of man is right, then you'll understand all these things. See, if you don't believe in the doctrine of man the way the Bible teaches it, that there is none good, none righteous, none who understand, none who seek God, then you can't understand my Savior and your Savior. When he, saw, when he saw fallen mankind in Matthew chapter 11, he said, like sheep without shepherds, harassed and helpless. I was just telling someone earlier, literally what he's saying there is they've fallen and they can't get up. 
as A.T. Robertson, the grand old Southern Baptist Greek scholar of, of great fame, says in his word pictures, it's like the drunken man who's staggering down the street, falls in the gutter, vomits all over himself, and he can't move to keep from suffocating himself. That's the condition Jesus sees us as sinners. And if you don't understand the fall of man and the sin that the Bible describes, then you don't see mankind right and you don't see Jesus rightly. That's why doctrine is right and important and necessary for us to have any kind of right living in this world. We can't be any good to anyone as long as we're patronizing them with the notion that they're okay. Doctrine is necessary and doctrine is practical. Second thing I want us to see is that Christ's teaching verifies that doctrine is necessary and practical. The model prayer, let's just start right there for instance. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, you know how it goes. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, okay, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven. He gives them the model. In Luke 18, verse 1, he tells us that we're to pray without ceasing. See, we wouldn't know that without the doctrine of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible. We wouldn't know what to pray without ceasing. We wouldn't know that we're incapable of framing a sentence to God in a way that's acceptable, except for Romans chapter 8. And then we wouldn't know that because we don't know how to pray about certain things, we would think, well, we're just in a hopeless state. I don't know how to pray about this, so I just won't. But Romans chapter 8 says, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit... The Spirit will take your groanings. The Spirit will take your best efforts and communicate them to the Father in the perfect heavenly language. That's Southern English, of course. See, you wouldn't know that without the doctrine, the teaching of the Bible. Doctrine's important for us to know how to pray why we pray we're also told that it's not just saying a bunch of words that makes up a prayer that was the problem with the Pharisees wasn't it they prayed these long incessant prayers and by the way Jesus claimed against that We would know that what makes a prayer effectual is not how many words we state, but that we state them believing. You have not because you ask not. You ask not because you don't believe. James tells us that we don't pray believing. Mark eleven twenty four. we learn. We have to pray believing. That's the reason we're supposed to be asking the Lord all the time, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. But we wouldn't know that without the teaching of the Bible. We wouldn't know that without the doctrine of prayer. The Sermon on the Mount, 
And let me just take, for example, chapter 7. It's an it's a oft-misused passage, Matthew chapter 7, those first verses. Let me just turn there for us. You can jot it down and go there. Judge not so that you be not judged. Many of us know the old King James authorized version. Judge not lest ye be judged. And people quit reading right there, don't they? And that's supposed to be the end all. You can't, don't you point your finger at me. Don't you tell me I'm wrong. Don't you correct me. That usually leads among Christians into this this crazy discussion about the priesthood of believers. And I'm a priest before God. You're a priest. You do your priest work for yourself and I'll do it for myself. Well, that's wrong too. Because that's bad doctrine that's produced bad practice. If we go on and read here, it doesn't say don't judge. It says judge properly. Don't judge according to your standard. Judge according to God's standard. Let me just read it. So if you have any doubts that I'm paraphrasing it rightly, here we go. Judge. Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, you better get your standard right. What's the standard? The book. You know, and then we got this little pious quip some people come with. No, I'm not supposed to judge, but I can be a fruit inspector. No, we're supposed to judge. We're supposed to take measure according to God's standard, not ours, not our cultural norms, not our preferences, but by the word of God. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is no log in your own eye? You hypocrite. See, the hypocritical thing is if you're judging them according to your own standard. Listen now. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your eye. See, it's not saying don't judge. It's saying judge properly. Judge according to right doctrine. Judge according to proper teaching of the Bible. And then what does he say? Don't give dogs what's holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, doctrine is very practical to help us properly instruct and correct not only ourselves, but others as well. And by the way, always as Peter tells us in 1 Peter, always with gentleness and meekness, with words that are seasoned properly with grace. The Olivet Discourse, sometimes it's called the Little Apocalypse, Matthew 24 through 25. What's going to happen in this world? How's God going to proceed with his church until the end of the age? Well, you find that in Matthew 24 and 25. And if you go there and read it, You'll find out that we're not supposed to live in a, in, a, in a fog of confusion. We're not supposed to have an angst about what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. 
Here's how we're supposed to live. Not wondering about when the time is, what's going to precede it immediately, what's going to happen in, during, and after something that somebody came up with in the 19th century. How are are we supposed to think about the end of times? How are we supposed to think about the things that are supposed to come? What's it supposed to affect in us? The doctrine, Peter says, will produce holy living. I remember years ago, a man wrote a sensational book, New York Times bestseller, multiple weeks on end, months and months and months, number one on the list, living a debauched life. The book, by the way, was all about the end of times. He's still on television. I tuned in the other night, was shocked to see that this man who's had multiple wives now, is still talking about Jesus, and anybody gives him credit. No. The things of of Christ concerning the last days is supposed to produce holy lives. Peter says we're to live lives without blemish because of the things we know. The Bible, the doctrine, the teaching. That's what it's all about, y'all. It's not just to know a bunch of facts. It's not just to know all the books of the Bible and be able to memorize so many verses. It's supposed to change us. It's supposed to have practical implications in our lives. The teaching of Paul verifies this. Teaching of Christ does. Teaching of Paul does. Romans six seventeen. Practice is shaped by doctrine. There in chapter 6, we're told that if we're in Christ Jesus, we are no longer enslaved to sin. How many Christians have you known to say, you know, I just can't help it. That's just the way I am. If I asked for a show of hands, everyone in this room would raise their hands because you've all heard it said, and I hope none of you have said it. Because Paul says we're no longer enslaved to sin, but we're enslaved to righteousness. We're no longer in bondage to Satan. We're in bondage to Christ. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. And you cannot say, I'm enslaved to Christ and I can't help it if I sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. There's no longer any condemnation, Paul says, and we've been, we've been set free from the power of sin. And one of these days, praise God, we're going to be free of the presence of sin when the Lord Jesus comes again or we die and go to be with him if it comes before that. Life is shaped by our mind. You all know this passage. But I'm going to read it to you again anyway. Chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewing of our minds. Two themes in R.C. Sproul's ministry. I'm sure 
Y'all could rattle them off right now. One, the holiness of God. Number two, his daily radio show, Renewing the Mind. Renewing the Mind. Because unless, unless we put it in, it's not going to come out. Proverbs 4 comes to mind. Bear with me a minute. Proverbs chapter 4. It's a verse some of you have memorized. But I want you to, I want you to hear this straight from God speaking. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. What's the heart? The heart's our whole being. That encompasses the mind. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. See, if we're not thinking the right thoughts, we're not going to be saying the right thoughts. We're not going to be doing the right things. It starts with doctrine. The reason people in these surveys are practicing wrong is because their doctrine is wrong. I don't know. I have a supposition here. The reason the shift has taken place, for a while it was doctrine's okay, it's pretty good, but practice is out of kilter. And now the doctrine, I think what's happened is we've practiced bad, sinful things so long we've adjusted our doctrine to make us feel better about it. Have you ever done that? You really want to do that. And here's, here's, here's three verses in the Bible that's pretty clear and don't do it. But this one over here seems a little gray. Oh, maybe I'll latch on to this one. So what have you done? You just adjusted your doctrine to justify your actions. Scripture is the source of doctrine. The theologians refer to it as the principium theologiae. Every once in a while you just need a good, good Latin phrase, you know. Principium theologiae. What's the principle? The source of our theology is the scripture. So scripture provides us our doctrine and the doctrine provides us as we've seen so wonderfully set forth over the past few weeks, chapters four and following in Ephesians, doctrine provides us with our living. And you notice something? Paul didn't start with, here's how you're going to live and oh, let me find a few Old Testament passages to back it up. He gave us the doctrine, and then he showed us naturally how our lives will flow out of that doctrine. Doctrine for life. Say, well, you know, doctrine doesn't comfort me. Well, then you, you've got the wrong doctrine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, I'm going to read the answer to the first Heidelberg question. What's our only comfort in life and in death? And you know how the Heidelberg authors answered that? With doctrine. With the teaching of the Bible. They were silly enough back then. Those antiquated old men were silly enough back then to think that if you got Jesus Christ right, 
that would provide all sorts of comfort for your life and would make dying easier. Listen to this. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Doctrine for life. You don't get it more clearly stated in one succinct paragraph than that. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next few Sunday nights. Good Lord willing. We ought to love what God has to say. And then we, sh- we, should, then we should love living in a manner that pleases him. Does it ever please you? To, after, you've, after you've sinned. Does it just make you wonder, feel wonderful all inside and so happy to talk to the Lord now that I've sinned? No. But when the spirit of the living God is working in us and we put to death that sin that rises up and we put righteousness on, we can turn around and talk to the Lord happily. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live every moment of every day like that? Well, right doctrine is where we start for that. But it all begins with knowing Christ first. There's no hope without Christ. Faith in Christ gives us then the basis for the doctrine to live as we ought to live and want to live. Father, thank you for these these few moments, we ask that you bless it way beyond, way, way far beyond the success of the delivery of these words, that we would bring great glory to you this week as we saturate ourselves more and more with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.